Good morning, good morning. Welcome back to the podcast. And the snow has gone, but the rain has arrived as warmer temperatures have hit. Um, I'm back in Hadfield Station, which uh, seems to be a bit busier than when I've been here previously because we've caught a time when a train is about to arrive. Uh, today, I'm heading down the Longdendale Trail. Um, fairly flat, we hope. Uh, hopefully really relatively covered to protect us from the rain although there were some trees down the other day from the wind and the snow so we'll find out how far we get but today i am walking with david jones of uh, the glossop chronicle although do you still count yourself as david jones of the glossop chronicle because technically you've retired but you're still in there every week david well, still out and about and still contributing to the uh, nostalgia page where we look back on Hat Museum Glossop from, well, almost the early days of the newspaper right up to the present time. Yeah, and 1859, I think, was the first year of the newspaper? Yes, and at one time, uh, when Glossop Heritage Centre was open on, uh, on Henry Street, uh, I used to go up every week and look through some of the very, very old uh, editions, which, yeah, dated back to the uh, 1890s at least. Very, very fragile, so we had to be careful mm. how we handled them. But, of course, now on the microfiche, and they can be viewed at Glossop Library. By anybody? By anyone. If you've got the time and the patience, I think we should add that caveat in. Well, that's it. And the library staff are very friendly because I'm useless on any kind of technology and, and, and machines, but they'll help you. They'll set up the uh, microfiche machine. They'll get the uh, the actual uh, edition you want out of the files. And uh, yeah, they're there if you go wrong. So it's ideal. Fantastic. Well, I'm just going to... Um Having paper and when it rains is never a good idea. I guess you probably learnt this in your career. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> right, this, um, an article which was in David's Nostalgia column um, relatively recently, I thought was a great one for just to mention. We're going to go through and mention some of the newspaper articles of note for this area. But one that you put in recently, the title of the article was Electric Trains Were On Track in Glossop. Um, and in this, it talks about the line from Glossop to Manchester had been electrified and the new age of the train had begun. Rail journeys on the track to the city had been long and not always comfortable before electric trains took over in 1954. Steam trains may seem romantic now, but they rattled and bumped along and opening windows filled carriages with fumes. So they had a bit of a party then in 1954. Well, it was a big day for Glossop because uh, people look back now on, st- on the so-called romantic age of the steam, but uh, the journeys could be very, very uncomfortable. And if you open the window and looked out, you're quite allowed to get a speck of dust and dirt in your eyes. So, uh, yeah, romantic age of the st- age of the train, probably not looking back. <laughs> I mean, it says here, uh, the British Rail publicity machine had promised passengers they would travel in luxury between Glossop and Manchester and that the smooth and almost quiet journey would take no more than 45 minutes. It was probably a luxury compared with the, the old steam trains. And uh, it, was a, it was a new innovation and, uh, you know, Glossop people had been looking forward to something like this. And not only Glossop people, but, of course, people living in towns further down the line in what we now call Tameside. 
Well, we will pin this particular um, uh, article to the map on londondaletales.co.uk. And I'm going to put that in my pocket before it disintegrates in the rain that we are about to head out. Right, shall we head towards the trail? Why not? <laughs> so, David, has the Glossop Chronicle always been the Glossop Chronicle? Has it had other guises over the years? Well, in the early days, it was known as the Glossop Chronicle and uh, Advertiser. And the uh, the title, as we call it, then the masthead, was emblazoned across the front page, which was then a broadsheet in thick, black, gothic type. <laughs> I mean, it must be wonderful looking at some of these articles. We have been digging out. In fact, I've done some screenshots, which I pinned to our map. Um, with the help of uh, Glossop Heritage Trust, actually, uh, Kate Rain there, has pulled out some fantastic articles. I mean, one of the ones that you um, highlighted in your 75 years ago today, or, or your nostalgia column anyway, uh, was the riders who uh, opened the trail. This is down near Torside. Oh yes, yeah, it was, uh, in those days, it was uh, a level crossing, mm -hmm. of course, on the Manchester to Glossop line. And they uh, opened it with, uh, a horse rider cutting a tape and declaring the trail well and truly open. In fact, I've got that here. So that article came out originally 22nd of June 95. Um, and it was Lady Townley, wife of Lancashire's Lord Lieutenant, was in town to officially open the way which runs to Torside to Woodhead Tunnel. That was it. So were you there then reporting on that one? Because it's got your name on this. I must have been. I can't. <laughs> Uh, yes, it was actually. Yeah, it was. I can't remember what the weather was like. Uh, no doubt it was probably like this. You know, it's, it's June. Come on, it's going to be home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in fact, as as we were speaking, as we were walking towards the start of a longer little trail, nice strong wind, but for the time being, the rain seemed to have uh, held off. Yeah. Well, you need that when you're cutting the ribbon. You don't need it blowing all over the place, well, do you? Well, you don't. <laughs> One of the um, articles which Kate had found, actually, was um, back in 1981. And in that, she was talking about the plans for the Longdendale Trail, actually, to kind of uh, reinvigorate the valley and east of Timwhistle. Um, and in it was kind of calling it as a beauty treatment go-ahead. I mean, it's, it's something, I suppose, that many of us take for granted, that the trail has just always been here. Um, but, you know, I suppose the period between when the railway was closed and what the trail is today, I, I can't imagine what was happening around here, really. Was there much? Was it accessible? It, it was and it wasn't. It was accessible by, by public transport, uh, by buses. Uh, they weren't all that regular. And uh, people coming by, uh, by car are... But it wasn't accessible as it is uh, today. But um, people got there, and uh, yeah, the plan which Kate was re uh, was referring to, uh, they wanted to uh, open up the uh, Londondale Valley, and in particular, they wanted to make more recreational use of uh, some of the reservoirs in Londondale, particularly the ones at Tintwistle, and the ideas were to uh, sailing, which happened, and also. Uh, sub aqua diving now i don't think that wow. ever got off the ground but uh, it was on the wish list i said we are boating now and uh, and fish and angling as well mm -hmm. 
it has opened up an expansive, absolutely beautiful countryside, which you can see as we walk along the trail this morning. Hopefully the weather doesn't uh, close in on us. <laughs> yeah, we are now just walking onto the top of the trail. And this is where you see the dry stone wall, which almost marks the start. It feels like you're on a proper railway then when you see that bit of dry stone wall. I mean, the other end, the Woodhead Tunnels, was obviously something that was talked a lot about in the local newspaper. Um, I'm just looking here on one very, very, very old article. Can I even see? I think it says here. Well, this is the reporter, 1954, New Woodhead Tunnel epic achievement and in it there it has the amazing photos of the tunnel and all its glory um, it talks about travel before the railways it really documents the history of what this means to this area I mean you did um, when you delved into the archive you did see about some of the people who might say be passing through here on train one of which you found dated back to 1948 uh, a very prominent uh, football match that was happening. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I think uh, Manchester United were in the uh, I think it was a quarter-final. No, the, semi-final. Uh, semi-final. I think it was the was FA it. Cup semi-final. That was it. And British Rail, as the operators were called in those days, uh, they reckon that there will be 21,000 people going from Manchester to watch the game at uh, Hillsborough Sheffield, yeah. in Sheffield. So they put on uh, 12 special trains. Yeah. Um, didn't say how many carriages per team, but I would think be quite a lot <laughs> to transport. Incredible though it may seem, the bulk of the 21,000 fans. Yeah, I, I guess to, to alleviate Sheffield. the pressure on the roads. Well, that's it. And I, I still imagine quite a number of people would actually travel by coach or traveling private cars to the game but the majority boarded the uh, the trains in manchester piccadilly and then uh, came all the way through longendale through the tunnel to the football match <laughs> i mean it's incredible isn't it because actually you know the pub that we've just walked past there the palantine i always thought of that as a united pub maybe i'm wrong but certainly lots of united photos there so to think that Many moons ago, there were, you know, potentially up to 21,000 United fans passing the door on the train. I mean, it was quite a, it sounds like quite a significant game. I went on to find out, well, what happened? And United won and they got there through to their first FA Cup final at Wembley in 39 years. I mean, seems like a different world then, doesn't it? Well, it does. And I suppose it was a very noisy journey on the way back from, uh, from Sheffield and... Uh, no doubt quite a lot of uh, alcohol, shall we say, was consumed. Well, it's funny you say win. that because there was something which uh, was in the paper in Glossop Chronicle in the year 2000, 21st of September 2000. And the title says, Remember Battle of Longdendale. And it was harking back. You wrote this article. Wonder You're never going to remember them all, are you? But it was highlighting... Um, <laughs> A bit of a to-do that happened in Timwhistle mm. when Liverpool fans were coming back from yeah. a football um, match. It looks like they were... Yeah, destination was Hillsborough. Yeah. And the much-awaited FA Cup semi-final between Liverpool and Leicester City 
Yeah, Liverpool had lost 1-0 and some of their followers wanted to drown their sorrows. And as the first pub for miles were in tiny tint whistle, the village felt the full brunt. There was people throwing up in the war memorial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was it. Uh, you know, the, obviously the fans set off in the coach from Sheffield and uh, yeah, went through the, uh, the countryside over the Woodhead uh, Pass. And the first pub they saw was in Tintwistle. I mean, I'm trying to think of which one it was. It must be maybe the Bull's Head. Um, uh, were there other pubs back then? I can't see yeah, no, which I date it actually is. It would probably, I would think, there was a pub called the... Uh, 1963, so... Yeah, there was, I think it was a church inn and the, uh, the Old Oak. Uh, if I remember serves me right, they were the probably the two pubs because they were actually on the uh, on the main road through Tintersall. The Bull was a little bit further away up, up Old Road, mm. so they would, the fans wouldn't have seen that. Yeah. Uh, so they just saw the bright lights of these two pubs and uh, ordered the driver to uh, stop, <laughs> and uh, out they got. I love how dramatic this one councillor is. He says. This day will be known as the Battle of Longdendale. These scenes were a disgrace. It's the worst thing that has happened in Longdendale that yeah. I can remember. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there were far worse uh, things that happened in Longdendale, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I think. That yeah. must have stuck out to this particular council. Uh, was it just the fact that they were Liverpool fans? Was that the... Uh... Well, there's always, even in Tinsel, there's always been bit of a rivalry between the, uh, the Manchester clubs and the clubs from Merseyside, so... I suppose it didn't help that they came from Liverpool. <laughs> One of the, the funny stories, I suppose, was Dick Turpin. And apparently he was meant to have passed through Tint Whistle. This is something that you had some fun with, didn't you? Did you go yeah. and meet a man who claimed to say that he had a connection to this? Well, that's it. Uh, allegedly, Dick Turpin stabled his horse overnight in Tint Whistle, close to a pub wasn't sure which pub it was. It could very well have been the uh, the bull. And I heard about this from uh, from a, an elderly chap at the time. And he said he actually knew uh, the owner of like a, a smithy uh, where Turpin's horse was uh, stabled. And the next thing he claimed was that he had the original anvil, which could, and says the word could, have uh, been the anvil used to re-shod <laughs> Dick Turpin's horse. So uh, I said, right, I'll come and see. Have you, have you still got the anvil? He said, oh, yeah, I've still got it. Still got it. So anyway, I, uh, I went up one day and he took me into his garage and uh, there was this hunk of misshapen metal. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it bore all the... Well, it resembled an anvil, put it that way. <laughs> Uh, but there was absolutely no evidence at all. Probably, I think it was. I think it might have been an anvil, but and that's where the the story finished, really, because uh, as they stress that it was definitely the anvil that Turpin's horse was shot on, and uh, and that was it. So uh, <laughs> that's many many years ago. So whether in fact the anvil is still is still there? Well, it should be in a museum. Well, it should. With a little little plaque on the side of it. <laughs> I'm not sure what Glossop Heritage Trust would say about that, but yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> but Turpin's horses must have been quite. Uh, 
Well, I, I should imagine he, he, he changed horses en route because I can't see him going all the way on one horse. Was he? I know it was to York, but I can't remember where he started his journeys from. Yeah. Oh, right, we're just going to navigate because there is still some of the trees fallen down. Uh, it's a little bit easier to navigate than it was on Friday when yeah. I was walking here. Just having to jump over this little stream. We're about to get to the first railway bridge uh, where it always seems to be a little bit muddy under here so you'll hear us splishing and splashing. There was also a chap who was um, in Tip Whistle called George. Um, I think I've even got his name. Um, George Thames, I think it is. And he was a lamplighter. He used to light all the lamps between Tint Whistle along the woodhead. Um, so then when people would get off the bus, they could yeah. see where they were going at night. And anyway, he decided one day, I think I need a pay rise. So <laughs> he went to the council and said, can you give me a pay rise? And they said, get away. You're not getting a pay rise. Uh, and so anyway, he went on strike. And uh, in this article, it talks about how storm clouds were gathering over Woodhead, the lamplighter had gone on strike, and the village was plunged into darkness. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, the amount of strikes which are happening right now. And you think of this guy, he was the man lighting all the lights for Tint Whistle. I suppose a very essential job in those days, because... uh the few, if any, street lights, yeah. and uh, mind you, how many people actually uh, walked along the Woodhead Pass once he got out to Tintwistle? Mm. Who knows? But uh, let's just hope eventually he got uh, he got an extra few pence a week, which is probably all it was in those days. <laughs> maybe, maybe. One of the other things which seems to crop up, and, and it seems like you had a bit of fun with, yeah. shall we say was the Londondale lights and there have oh, been yeah. so many accounts of people seeing lights and strange objects and hearing voices particularly around that bit near Devil's Elbow and Brammer Edge yeah. uh, where I'm going to be walking to actually in a few days what can you tell us about that that must be an interesting bit for you Ah, oh, well the Londondale lights phenomenon we call it that is been around for as long as most people uh, can remember yeah people claim to have seen strange lights uh, in the sky sometimes zigzagging sometimes appearing and then just whooshing away and disappearing almost as quick as they arrived been going on for years obviously and people believe what they want to believe but uh, We've contacted aviation authorities and uh, asked if there are any planes in coming over uh, Longdale at that time. And they're quick to remind us that it's yeah, it's almost like a turning a circle to Manchester, in Manchester International Airport. It could have been the planet Venus. It could be the headlights from cars on the whole Moss Road because apparently when you reach the summit of whole Moss, uh, it's so steep, the headlights shine into the sky. Right. It okay. could have been the, that. Is that the turning for Homeforth off Woodhead Pass? Yeah. yeah. But people say, no, we're certain. We believe what we've seen, and that's not the case. <laughs> and strangers should say this, because looking through the newspaper only this week, and we found a piece by two young girls, actually, they're only nine years old, and they were playing on swings in, 
in Gamesley. Uh, mid 90s late well, not late one night but it was st- it was still a light night and they saw what they said was a ball of light over Mottram church mm. uh, they said in shape it was like a diamond it moved very very quickly and they said it seemed to be like a I think it said flying saucer but they were only nine years old <laughs> and they actually uh, as soon as we saw it, they, they raced home, got out a, um, an exercise book and some crayons, and actually drew what they saw in the book. And this, like a, a child's picture of, of Mottram Church, and overhead was like a diamond shaped light. Whether it's imagination, whether they saw something, I don't know, but it's. it's Go, it's been going on for years and years, but recently the so-called sightings seem to have dried up. Mm. Or at least if people see them, they haven't been telling us about them. Yeah, because I mean, Glossop Mountain Rescue Team have been called out to these lights, haven't they? And they've got there and not found anything. They've kind of been reported. I mean, this, this one particular article, mm. which we have pinned to our map, um, says, I saw UFOs ball of light um, and says nothing in the world travels that fast a chap called uh, Bob Wormsley who you've interviewed here yeah. um, it looks like he, he was looking out over Longdendale towards the Snakes Pass Right. three times it came and mysteriously hovered in the dark sky and each time it hurtled away um, <laughs> something that Bob found unbelievable uh, 24 hours after he spotted the incredible ball of light at 5am Bob was still shaken by the ordeal. I know what I saw, and it wasn't a plane or a helicopter. I will stake my children's lives on that. I mean, this has been quite divisive, hasn't it? So here we look. Uh, There's some examples here that you put here. Bright lights and flying saucers. So last spring, John Gwynne saw a blue V-shaped light travelling at terrific speed above Dinting Vale. Uh, Laverne Marshall of Quarry Close was with family on Woodhead Pass when brightly coloured balls of light suddenly appeared in the car and danced around. In July, school friends Matthew Greaves and David per- Percival from Whitfield saw the flying saucer that must be mm. um, over Mouselow Castle. A uh, number of UFO sightings so great that London Weekend TV filmed people in Longdendale who had seen strange lights in the sky. And that programme is called Strange But True. I mean, I did find a, a copy of that, actually, mm. somewhere on YouTube. I watched right. that episode. Um, where is this the one where the mountain rescue team were pretending to be Roman soldiers? Is that the same one? I mean, there's been some very strange programmes about the Longdendale lights. Oh, they have. And, and people who have seen them they're convinced and they won't sway won't be swayed by suggestions that what they saw was something particularly normal like the planet venus headlights from uh, from the cars on the uh, on the snake pass sorry on the woodhead pass at home home moss they convinced that no no it was something unusual something that uh, went very very fast and they wouldn't be shaken in their beliefs they saw something and you wouldn't convince me of anything normal. Mm. I mean, I suppose people are quite interested in the history. There are podcasts. In fact, we'll, we'll turn around and head back because it looks like it's getting pretty muddy down that yeah. way. So um, we're coming up to, well, just over 25 minutes. Um, the, 
there have been a lot of kind of TV programmes and podcasts and things about the Longdondale Lights because I suppose the history here of, you know, in other episodes I've been going to visit some of the aircraft crash sites and that's where, you know, someone like Bob, say, seeing that seeing a plane in the sky that yeah. was moving incredibly fast. Um, I was talking to someone who used to live on one of the houses in Deep Clough, nice. a little bit further along the trail, and he talked about when he lived there with his parents. Um, he went out for a walk with the dogs one day and he could hear people shouting, help, help. And yeah. the dogs, he said that he wouldn't have believed it, he was a cynic, but for the dogs chased this figure running up the hill. So he knew then that the dogs had seen what he had seen. Yeah. And that little corner there around Devil's Elbow seems to be just a particular interesting one. I mean, you did also do an article, which uh, I suppose you had a bit of fun with, which was to do with Vale House Reservoir. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, yes. Yeah, this, I believe, was the one where... Uh, we had reports, this was after a particular dry summer, and there were reports that uh, flying saucers had landed on the uh, almost dried out reservoir bed. Uh, there. <laughs> I mean, that, that is just like, wow. When you get a call like that in the newsroom, mm. does anything surprise you anymore? <laughs> no, not at all. The long ceased bit to be a surprise, to be honest with you. But we thought, yes. So I went out with uh, with a photographer and we parked up near the uh, reservoir and we looked over the wall and, uh, yeah, there were circular impressions in the almost dried up reservoir bed. So we climbed over the wall and uh, walked onto the bed of the reservoir and I can remember a photographer taking photographs of me stood uh, at the side of one of these depressions. And yeah, it was perfectly spherical. I would think it was about six inches deep. Two or three of them uh, pretty close together. And if, you imagine, if your imagination did run, run riot, you could imagine that, uh, yeah, it uh, could be. The impressions made by some object uh, when it landed. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we uh, put a piece in the paper, the photographs, and what this chap had uh, said to us. And uh, is this the first concrete evidence of UFOs landing in Londondale? You know, does it give strength to? Uh, all the allegations that have been made over the years. So we put that in and I must admit it was, it was very tongue-in-cheek because uh, we didn't really think it was flying saucers. But having said that, we'd no idea what it was. Anyway, it went in the paper and uh, wasn't too long before we had the first of uh, many phone calls and all of them said one thing. Uh, no, the actual... Uh, circular impressions uh, were the foundations of the uh, mill chimneys uh, which was knocked down when that area was flooded uh, to, to create the reservoir <laughs> so you know another myth dispelled but uh, it's always a good read well uh, yeah you know what sometimes in this day and age we need a bit of light relief um, yeah. You know, and, and I think it makes people want to go down and see these parts of, um, 
you know, the patch, really. It's encouraging people to get out there and go and see for themselves. There's a lot of stories about Woodhead, uh, paranormal activities around Woodhead Tunnel and, of course, around uh, St James' Chapel. Yes. And remember, a Glossop Paranormal uh, Society organised a, a coach ride one Halloween to some of the so-called scary spots in Longdendale. Yeah. First port of call was at St James's Churchyard, yes. which is supposed to be haunted. Yeah. And the bodies of quite a lot of the workers who died with one head tunnel was being built are buried there. Yeah. As our families who died from I think it was typhoid who lived in a little more than shanty villages, they were called in those times, at, uh, at Saltersbrook. Yes. Now, we went along at, at dead of night, and it was pitch black. You couldn't see a hand in front of you. And we actually, somehow, we were lucky we didn't fall over, managed to pick our way in, I say, darkness, around these uh, graves. We saw nothing at all. <laughs> we went to the site of one of the, uh, the villagers, where again, sadly, many, many people uh, died, uh, nothing at all. And then in the end, we went to uh, Woodhead Tunnel, which was particularly interesting in a way, because the organisers of, um, of the little ghost tour, as it was billed, uh, said that orbs of light, which were the spirits of the people, who died, the miners, could be seen on the actual outside walls of uh, Woodhead Tunnel. Oh. And I think it almost like the King's, you know, the King's New Clothes, and we all went up there, and the organisers then said, yep, there's, a, there's an orb of light, there's an orb of light. And a few of the believers said, oh yeah, there's an orb of light, there's another orb of light. Yeah. And it was explained that this was the spirits of the... Uh, the people who, you know, behind the tunnel. And I was with a, another reporter and uh, said to me, David, have you, can you see any orbs of light? So I says, no. Can you? She says, well, no. So I said, why can't we see orbs of light and uh, other people can? So I said, well, perhaps it is because the uh, other people have... Uh, shelled out the money to go on the coach trip so they want to see something <laughs> and uh, we just come along for the ride and to uh, to write a good story and, well, and did the photographer not pick anything up because no. that's oh, that's a shame i mean at that point were the woodhead tunnels closed because at one point they were obviously open weren't they yeah. until national grid sealed them up yeah no they were they, they were closed and you could obviously you could see the uh, the metal gates in front of them. Which is how it is today, yeah. It is, yeah. But these orbs of light were actually on the, the rock face above the tunnel. <laughs> but I said, we saw nothing. And my eyesight was a lot better then it is now. So, <laughs> now it's... So, in a way, it's, a, it's an example. Do you see what you want to see? Uh, I honestly don't know. I haven't seen it. I wish I could. I wish I had. I wish I had seen something. <laughs> it might swayed your journalism forevermore. Well, yeah. It's um, and who knows 
one day someone will have you could have got a new career david of like become a paranormal writer well could yeah. have been like the you know a change within you exactly <laughs> but it's just like like ghosts and things like that you know the people reckon they've seen ghosts and uh, but there hasn't been any any evidence even in this day of super high technology of cameras to verify the existence of ghosts or spirits walking around. Well, if you are someone who has seen the Londondale lights or ghosts in this century, then uh, get in touch because we'd like to know. Are they still there, supposedly? I mean, the Woodhead Tunnels, I suppose, is an interesting story in that, you know, for many years, people gave their lives, really, to build these first two tunnels. And then a third tunnel was you know, as we were just hearing there in 1954, was really kind of shone a spotlight as Britain's first, you know, all-electric mainline. It was, we were like up there as an example to the country. And, you know, there are videos, which again, I've pinned to the map by British Transport Film in black and white, showing how they built the tunnels. And then, you know, when the train line eventually became freight only, and then there were no passengers, and then eventually it closed it's almost like it's just a bit of forgotten history that you know you'd be like oh there's a tunnel there but we can't go in it and nobody really knows why i mean at one point there was hopes or a campaign to try and bring the tunnel back into use i suppose in other parts of the peak district you've got things like monsell trail um where people cycle along it's turned into a beautiful path but it just didn't seem like the amount of work that was going to need to be able to make this safe that it could ever really be something that was viable and national grid gave up sealed it the government said nope we can't make this happen and yeah. that was the end of that but i suppose it was many years of toing and froing that must have been kind of in the in the back of your mind watching that story unfold yeah and i i can remember when i was just started on the news for many many years ago uh actually uh once a tunnel was was closed and before the electric cables were moved in, uh, having a walk with a photographer actually inside. Wow. We didn't walk all that far through it because in all honesty, uh, it was very dark. They didn't have any uh, any lights on, but we walked for about uh, 100 yards. But it must have taken a heck of a lot of construction actually blasting away tons and tons of of rock, yeah. you know, to cut, to cut away under the Pennines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic feat of of engineering, and many people say, and I think I'm probably one of them, that uh, the tunnel was closed far too early. If it had been kept open, it would have still been a busy line today, and uh, it would have taken a heck of a lot of traffic off the uh, A628 road through through Hollingworth and Tintinsel, and of course through Woodhead itself. Although we wouldn't be able to do the walk that we're doing today, perhaps. Well, that's it. Because so. now we're now walking up one, what would have been the uh, the train bed. Yeah. And something that we didn't mention that I once went to a football match at Sheffield, mm-hmm. actually on the on one of the trains. Oh, really? And surprisingly, uh, although nobody got on or off, uh, the train stopped at the station at uh, at Woodhead. Oh. Um, say nobody got on, but what we thought we would do, when we got to uh, Sheffield, a friend of mine who was with, phoned his father and said, 
can you come and pick us up at Woodhead Station? We're going to get off there. <laughs> so he did. So actually, there was about four of them to a football match. And the train actually stopped at uh, Woodhead. We opened the doors and, uh, and got off. And when other fans heard the doors being slammed, they could see all the heads looking through the windows say, they, we're in the middle of nowhere. Why the heck have they got, have they got off here? And of course, in those days, Woodhead had a station which was almost like a mini castle. Yes. It was a gorgeous piece of architecture. Yeah. Why it was ever built there when few people would have uh, actually got on and got off at Woodhead. I have no idea. It must have cost a fortune. Well, the only thing I was kind of coming to the conclusion was I couldn't put a timeline on it, but at one point when people weren't able to use the tunnels, they would stop at Woodhead, have something to eat and drink, and then horses would take them over to Dunford Bridge where they'd continue their journey to Sheffield. Yeah. Um, I can't put a time on when that was. Was it, you know, 1800s or 1900s? I mean, they delayed building the third tunnel, which was the one that became the electric tunnel because yeah. of the Second World War. They obviously yeah. didn't have resources and manpower to do it, so yeah. they, they put that off for a number of years. So I do wonder whether it was around that time. Could have been, yeah, because the old tunnel, the original tunnels, they were, they were twin tunnels. Yes. And I actually walked through one of those as well, and that was, that was horrible. <laughs> All it was, there was just room, for, just room for one line and very, very claustrophobic. Yes. And you could imagine the effect on the train drivers in the old steam train days and the, uh, and the firemen who actually uh, fed coal onto the, into the furnace. Yeah. And they must have been, been breathing in thick, acrid smoke. Yeah, I mean, you can actually... Um, by the way, we've, we've come off the trail now. We're walking back to Hadfield Station. So we've just passed Malvern Rise. We're about to pass the Palantine pub and cross over there to go back to the station. I mean, the, when you walk along the moors now, above where, what the, t- where the tunnel was, mm. um, there are still air shafts. Yes, and next are. to the air shafts are these kind of, you know, kind of um, derelict buildings, which I imagine was where some of the workers would maybe go and get something to eat. You could see there was a, you know, a bit of a fireplace or maybe they even yeah. slept, you know, in between their shifts. Um, yeah, I, you know... Amazing that you got to walk through this. I, gosh, have you got any photos of any of these trips, even going on the train that day? No. Well, I suppose it's you didn't have an iPhone those days where yeah. you're doing selfies, do you, really? Well, that's it. Yeah, it was something very much regretted, but uh, I don't think it was the interest in the tunnel in those days. Like um, just mentioned earlier on, about 21,000... Uh, fans actually going on the uh, trains through through Longdendale. The actual week it happened, which is around about 75 years ago this week, mm. it made about two or three paragraphs in the uh, in the newspaper. Wow, and you know, all those fans that would have been travelling and we don't have any photos or there's not really many accounts of what that no. was like because it was a normal time, a normal it, thing that they did. If we'd have done more on it, people would have said, well, so what? Yeah. You know, what, what's the news angle in, uh, in that? But uh, looking back, yeah, it was quite interesting. And, uh, but sadly, it only made a couple of paragraphs and no photographs at all. Well, you are the only person that I've interviewed who has actually been on that train line and seen what it was like to get off at Woodhead 
platform. I mean, <laughs> that's uh, that really is quite incredible. And to have been in the tunnels, to me, you know, having only moved here three and a half years ago, mm. they're almost like these forgotten, hidden, locked away places that I'll never get to see. So it's amazing to kind of hear these stories, mm. you know, of what that was like and, and try and keep these stories alive really for many hundreds of years um i mean if people are listening and they do have photos or stories we do want to hear them because like we say it's almost like a, a bit of a gap in the history isn't yeah. it really oh yeah there's, there's very much uh, has, has been lost through the uh, the periods of time but you never know hopefully someone somewhere in our area uh may have an old newspaper cutting may have a uh, old photographs of uh, steam trains passing over the line between uh, Hadfield and Woodhead Tunnel. Yeah. Who knows? Fingers (laughs) crossed, Claire, eh? Well, we've arrived back at the train station and the next train is the 10.14 to Manchester Piccadilly. Wonder whether they'll be travelling in luxury. It takes less than 45 minutes these days. I'm sure it's half an hour, I think, is it? Just over, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. And, you know, for people who live in the area or even further afield, the Glossop Chronicle can be read online. Yeah. Um, And every week there is a paper, which I think is a very precious and rare thing these days to continue to have a local paper weekly. Mm. Um, And in that, your nostalgia uh, column still yeah. there and uh, got some of these stories if people are interested in keeping up with this well exactly we have a full page every week um, called our yesterday's page and which is just that we you know we look back over the years and uh, yeah i'm sure hopefully people find it interesting and it, they might think to themselves hmm that's a new one on me yeah yeah well the whole point of these podcasts um and your columns are to make people connect with the history and where they live a little bit deeper. So we hope we've done that and uh, look forward to taking you out for another walk very soon. Bye for now.